Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right, so this is Andrew and I breaking in, or whatever phrase you want to use, a few weeks before we actually record the episode that you're about to hear. And this was an idea of Andrew's that he had where we would pick a random team from a random season and we would just talk about that team for however long we could manage to do so. And so this is us doing the drawing right beforehand. Andrew, where do you want to start with this? Maybe we just want to choose between MLB, NBA and NFL. Yeah, I think that's the best way to go. I have a random number generator up here. And the, the sort of the genesis of this idea was every episode we do goes twice as long as we expected it to, sometimes more than that. And I was getting to the point where I forget what the episode was, but it was a topic I didn't think I'd have that much to say on. And suddenly it was a two hour episode. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I think we can probably talk about any team for as long as we have a little bit of time to prepare, I think we can pretty much talk about any team for at least a, an acceptable episode length of, you know, an hour or so. So, you know, obviously the drawing is going to be uh, going to dictate a lot of this. It will be kind of funny, although not really the point if we get like a very famous team as we're doing this. So what I have here is I'm going to do a random number generator between one and three first. So we'll do alphabetical. So baseball will be one. MLB will be one. NBA will be two, NFL will be three. Okay. Yeah. So whichever number it. comes up, that'll be the league we're going to use. Go for it. And the result is two. So we're going to have an NBA team that we will discuss. So now the question becomes for the NBA, how far back do we want to go? I mean, definitely not. You're not suggesting any earlier than 1947, are you? No. Okay. 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 We did that episode. Yeah. 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 I don't know if we want to get some team that (laughs) played four games one year. I would like, I would like to do more on the red man tobaccos, but (laughs) yeah. So that would be that that becomes the question is, and since it's basketball and not baseball, my initial fear with some of this was we would get a baseball team from 1915, but not, you know, not a hilariously bad team, but not a prominent team. And we'd basically just be reading their baseball reference page. I mean, we could go back as far as 1947. We could go to what, what, how, what Let's do you do think? 60, 1960. Yeah. Okay. And so, for base for basketball, I guess we're also going to have to specify that we're talking about the, the the year the season ended the year the season ended and we're going to go up to current day or we're going to go up to 2000 or let's go up to 20 okay so we got a 60 year so, range so right now what we're doing is we i have 1960 and 2020 in as the two numbers and when we get the answer to this we will get the nba year we will be discussing and then we will narrow it down to a specific team so i am hitting generate right now and the number that comes out is 1982. 
So we will be discussing the 1981-1982 NBA season. Fitting um, because that was my birth year and yes. a, a season that I'm going to insist or a year that I'm going to insist that we commemorate later this year with one of our anniversary episodes. Even though, but it's, you were not a, you were not born during this season, but no, but I mean, we're going to make sure we talk about mm-hmm. all of 1982 in the sort all of right. like we did for 86. Before we do this, let's just kind of take a quick look at this to kind of this was the the Lakers over Philly in the NBA finals. This was the Lakers beat Philly four to two in the finals. This was the year before the Sixers brought in Moses and swept the Lakers in the following year. This was sort of the early days of the Showtime Lakers. It was still kind of magic and Norm Nixon and, you know, sort of, sort of some of the earlier guys. So in addition to the Lakers, obviously the Celtics, uh, you could get the Bucks, who were 55 win team this year. So we've got some options here and then we've got some, uh, some other Knicks weren't very good that year, 33 to 49, 33 and 49. So I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, some of these I, I know very, very little about. So we'll have to. Yeah. And we're obviously giving ourselves time to study. But um, so what I'm thinking now is I have the standings up by conference. Mm-hmm. There's 23 teams in the NBA. What I think I'll do is I'll put the random number generator in one through 11 would be in that order in the Eastern Conference. And then 12 through 23 would be that order in the Western conference. And then whatever the number is, is who we go. Is that good? Yep. Let me try and pull up. I don't see the conference standings, but whatever. I'll, it's I'll, the, I'll I have it. It's at the bottom of the Wikipedia entry. Um, oh, I'm on basketball reference. Whatever. Okay. It's fine. All right. So let's pull this up. So, so remember, we've already picked the NBA randomly and we've picked the 1981, 1982 year, which could have been a lot Let's be really honest. Um, <laughs> 1957 and any team that's not there, you know, 1962 and any team that's not the Celtics would have been kind of rough, but Celtics right. or Lakers probably. Yeah. <laughs> so between one to 23, the number that came up was 22. So that's going to be whoever was second to last in the Western conference, which means we will be doing an episode on the 1981, 82 Utah Jazz, who went 25 and 57. <laughs> um, who was on this team? Head coach began the year. Head coach was a guy named Tom Nasalki. It says in parentheses, fired. <laughs> he was replaced by general manager Frank Layden. That year in the draft, they took Danny Shays with their first overall pick. Some of the guys on the roster, Adrian Dantley was on the roster. Daryl Griffith. I've heard of him. Ricky Danny Green. Shays. Ricky Green. And so how you know that this is a legitimate thing is that we are going to stick with this. And it might not be a super long episode, but we are going to do an episode on this horrible Utah Jazz team. In the awards and records section on Wikipedia, it said, this section is empty. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess they did not win any awards. We will be pouring through the... Well, here's the one thing I will say. A coach getting fired means we'll at least be able to find an article about that and what led up to that. And then yeah. the GM naming himself the coach. So, hey, look, this was part of it. We knew if we spun the wheel, we, we had to be tested and we are tested. We'll be pouring through lots of 40-year-old articles from the Salt Lake City Tribune or whatever the newspaper is. Let's not point out that 1982 was 40 years ago. That's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to do that. Oh, Lord. Well, the good news is, is that 
it'll be a short episode <laughs> when we do when we do our 1982 anniversary episode in you know six or eight months whenever we decide to do that it probably won't be the type of thing well it's like well we already talked about a lot of this stuff because chances yeah. are that jazz would not have come up adrian dantley did make the all-star team as i'm looking at the 82 uh yeah, mm. so I have a feeling this episode will be a lot about Adrian Dantley. And we're not going to just go like night by night, but, you know, different players and different interesting possible things. It may not have occurred in that year, but it's more a jumping off point. So, yeah, and it's also possible. I don't know. This is probably not that long after they moved from New Orleans. So maybe there's some of that at play, too. Yes, that's true as well. All right. Well, we've got our work cut out for us. Sometimes Andrew, I will. I'm sorry. Go fi- sometimes when you go fishing, you catch a boot. And <laughs> by here's the funny thing. This is part of this episode. So 30 seconds from now in this episode, I will suddenly know more about the 1982 Utah Jazz than I I know right now. We're getting the boot just like Tom Nasalki got the boot in uh, (laughs) 1982. So, all right. Well, we will. uh, Andrew, I'll talk to you about this in about a week or so. Audience, I will talk to you in. uh, We will talk to you in about 23 seconds. All right, so we've taken some time to study here a little bit about our random team. I don't believe if we said it. I don't know if we said it when we first did our drawing, but hello, old sports. Uh, Dan and Andrew, back with you again, here to talk about the 1981-82 Utah Jazz. Yeah, and, you know, we uh, we obviously had to take a couple of weeks to sort of prepare what we were going to talk about, do some studying. And it's, it's just because, I mean, it's a cliche. It's like, Oh, you know, they're going to do their 1982 jazz episode now. Like every podcast does. It's like, <laughs> you know, Oh, it's the conspiracy TV show by episode five. They're out of ideas and they're going to talk about the Kennedy assassination. It's a, uh, you know, whatever. It's like, Oh, that's oh, they're out of ideas. They're going back to the, the 82 jazz. Well, so I feel like at least, hopefully we've put a different spin than the, you know, the series that have been on this team and things like that. So no, they, in all seriousness, I do have to say that while studying this, I believe my initial hypothesis is going to be vindicated and that we can more than get a full length episode out of any team. If this one is, is a judge of, uh, of the high is the first test of the hypothesis. I think there's plenty here to talk about. We're obviously not going to just go, oh, and then in game eight, they lost to Milwaukee, and then in game nine, but sort of using this team as a launch pad for the characters, the team, the players, anyone who was involved in this team and sort of branching out into their stories while also talking about the team on the court and success, or in this case, lack thereof. Yeah, I guess our only hope for the future one of these would have to be that we didn't get like the 82, 83 jazz and have to come up with another. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah, it's not um, if we suddenly got a team that's like, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I would be more disappointed if this first time we did this and the team we got was the 81, 82 Lakers, to be honest, because it kind of I mean, there's a happy medium. I wouldn't have minded getting a team that lost in the second round and maybe a few years later won a championship or a few years earlier won a championship or was at least a good team. But if we just got a team that was like, Oh, now we're talking about a team that was really good. And people have talked about a lot before I'd have been a little bit like, 
eh, you know, disappointed, I guess. So I guess, Andrew, I'll kind of leave it to you. Where do you want to start with this? Because I actually found a lot of interesting little one off stories here. This is what I guess maybe like the eighth year of the jazz in Utah after having moved from New Orleans. And I don't even know if it's that much, to be honest. I think it's their third year in Utah based on what I've seen here. Let me pull up the franchise index here based on my notes. Now, these notes are a little bit old, but uh, let's check. Basketball reference, previous season, previous season. Yeah, right. 78-79 was their last year in New Orleans. So this would be their third season in in Utah. Oh, so this might have been their eighth year total. I must have misread that. Yep. And, And I think that's actually a good place to start. Growing up, I was born in 1986. Probably the earliest I know anything about the Utah Jazz is maybe 94, 95, uh, Stockton and Malone and the purple uniforms. And then there was a movie came out a few years after that called Celtic Pride, where Damon Wayans plays the star player of the Utah Jazz. So that was sort of my early introduction to that. And one of the things I heard about was one of the first things I remember about with the Jazz is sort of offhand comments from my father talking about the Utah jazz and how ridiculous that name was. Cause I didn't know what, I don't even know that I knew what jazz music was, let alone knowing that it was absurd that the Utah team was called the jazz. You don't know what jazz music is. You feel what jazz music is. You have to listen to the notes. She's not playing. (laughs) (laughs) I could do that at home. So, what I think I want to talk touch on is actually what the circumstances that came to the Utah Jazz, the Jazz moving from New Orleans to Utah, and then also keeping the name. Mm-hmm. So, as we mentioned, late the Jazz had started in what around yeah, a, the and I'm reading from a Bleacher Report story from 11 years ago by a guy named Christopher Woodley. The NBA was awarded the uh, awarded the city of New Orleans with the 18th franchise in 1974 named jazz obviously made sense. They ended up with pistol Pete Maravich in 19 uh, shortly after that, he was traded from Atlanta. He'd obviously been a big deal in that state with, with LSU in college, still the all-time leading scorer in college basketball by a million points. The issue was they did not have, and this was, not remarkable for the time in anywhere in the NBA for the most part. They did not have what you would call a suitable facility. Their first year, they played at the 6,500 seat Loyola University Fieldhouse. The court was, and I don't know if you saw this, says one of the unique features of the facility was how high the court was raised. And if you think about, if you ever watch the final four, you, and you have to really look for it. But when they play these basketball games in huge domes, you see where they almost step up to the court. Yeah. The benches are like half a step down from the court. And the main reason for that is just visibility. They can obviously do whatever they want in this day and age in those stadiums. But it said the NBA Players Association was so concerned that they ordered the Jazz to put a net around the court to prevent players from falling off the court and into the stand. I've seen that so, before, not in preparation for this, but I've seen that story mm-hmm. before. So then they moved from the field house to totally in the other direction and played at the Louisiana Superdome. So the home of the Saints still exists to this day, you know, 80,000 seats, whatever. So they ultimately complained the city, you know, arena stuff. We won't go too crazy into it, but 
the city of New Orleans, the big reason they moved in addition to that was the city of New Orleans had an 11% amusement tax, which was the highest in the nation. And that was the biggest, or at least was cited as the biggest reason for the jazz struggling financially. Obviously, the performance on the court was nothing to write home about. Either. Now, is that a is that a tax on the tickets like they have at hotels and that type of thing? I think it's a tax on the venue. I don't know how that is um, passed along with the consumer. Yeah. yeah, it said ironically after the jazz left town, the tax was eventually repealed by the city for venues of more than eighteen hundred seats. Not to take this into this direction, but learning a lot as I have about the history of professional wrestling. The Superdome was a big town for, or it was like a once every two or three month show for the promotion that ran out of that part of the country. And they talked about how you couldn't go there more than that because of how the phrase they use is how much it costs to turn the lights on. So how much you had to pay in ticket takers and security and things like that, you almost had to fill it up or come close for it to be worth your while. So when you're talking about basketball, where they're playing 41 home games a year more, if you count preseason if you're only putting, even if you're only putting eight or nine, even if you're doing eight or 9,000, which I'm guessing the jazz didn't, you're losing money. They ultimately, they signed Gail Goodrich from the Lakers in 1976, uh, which was not ultimately a signing that, that bore fruit for them, especially because the part of the trade for that pick involved a high pick that ultimately turned into magic Johnson for the Lakers. (laughs) Um, not the last interesting trade with the Lakers from around this time period for the Jazz either, which we'll get to in a second, I'm sure. Sure. So the owner at the time, Sam Battistone, is looking for places to go. He ultimately ends settles on Salt Lake City. One of the main reasons Salt Lake City is an attractive venue is because they had, from 1970 to 1976, had a very successful ABA franchise, the Utah Stars. Yeah. So it does seem like a little bit of like, well, how did an NBA team end up in Utah anyway? You know, Utah is the, to be frank, the whitest of the white when you consider, you know, sort of the culture and most of the state is people who are from the, what we commonly call Mormons, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, basketball, especially a team coming from, you don't really have much of a, nowhere in the country is more of a whiplash than from New Orleans to Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah, that's a good point. We could probably say that. So Board of Governors approves the move in 1979. And just as a um, addition to this story, so they move, they're still considered the New Orleans Jazz. They decide to move to Salt Lake City. And uh, the story I have here, which is a deadpin, uh, deadspin story. So they, they move to Utah. It's only it's three players different. Or, initially, the Utah team was going to be called the Saints. There was a contest in the local Chamber of Commerce. Not surprisingly, in a city filled with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they were going to be called the Utah Saints. You know, obviously another interesting story in that they were going to take the name from the other professional sports team at the time from New Orleans. Some of the rejected names, the Salt Lake City Slickers, the Salt Lake Salts, the Utah Outlaws, the Salt Lake Choir Boys, and the 79ers. <laughs> it said, uh, according to the guy who was the legal counsel for the team at the time, I have a feeling there would have been a phone call made to them and they'd become the 79ers. By the 76ers, you mean? Actually, probably two, because the 49ers might have had something to say anyway. And the reason, one of the actual, there's two competing theories. The theory from the general counsel was that Sam had lost a lot of money on the team and didn't want to spend another 10 grand on new uniforms, which is in the context of today, 
A, that dollar amount, and B, the not wanting to pop for new uniforms in the days of teams having 30 different uniform combinations is funny. According to Battistone, he wanted to stick with the Jazz because he said, when the Jazz do well, I want the league and the fans to remember that it's the same team that was such an also-ran, that was always such an also-ran in New Orleans. Now you decide which one of those seems more plausible. To me, the money seems more plausible. Well, yeah, especially with the, uh, the NBA in the late 70s. The fact that somebody couldn't afford something is not at all a crazy thought to me. It's funny how even now it's almost like an even split with these teams when they move, whether they keep their identity or not. You know, the, the Grizzlies, when they moved from Vancouver to Memphis, um, the Hornets tried to keep theirs. or They did keep theirs for a while when they moved from Charlotte to, to New Orleans. So teams do, they, they tend to keep their identity more often than not these days, I feel like, but it's always an interesting conversation, how they keep the identity of what they had before in a previous city that they didn't do too well in. Yeah. And, and truthfully at this point, I think it's a it's a great unique thing that there's a team called the Utah jazz. You know, I, I think at this point, like, if faced with the prospect of being able to change the name, I'm glad they wouldn't. And I know there was some talk when new Orleans got another team and then, okay, they're not going to be the Hornets anymore. Charlotte's going to be the Hornets. And people had said like, Oh, should they try to buy the jazz back from Utah? And it's like Utah's the jazz have been in Utah for 40 years at this point. They, they were in new Orleans for like seven, just because geographically it would make more sense. Like I think so anyway, don't want to belabor that. We obviously have a lot to get into with the 27 and 55 team. We're going to cover 25 and 57, excuse me, team tonight. But I just sort of wanted to set the stage that we're in a team. It's third year in Utah. Not like they were tremendously successful in New Orleans before that. It's a obviously a whiplash name. It's a first time market, although they'd been hot for the ABA just a couple of years earlier. But that's the sort of backdrop we enter the 1981-82 season in is a team that had been in that city for two years. The first year they went 24 and 58 in Utah. The next year they went 28 and 54 in Utah. So certainly not building on any real success heading into the year we're about to talk about. And they go in not expected to do very much. I have a, this is actually was a, was a tremendous find as, as a member of Saber, the society of American baseball research, which I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with. I have a free access to the archives of the sporting news. And so I looked through a lot of old issues of the sporting news and the 81, 82 NBA preview in the sporting news says that the Jazz, they're led by a two-pronged offensive attack of forward Adrian Dantley and Daryl Griffith. Griffith had been named Rookie of the Year in 70, uh, what would have been 80-81. And they, they say he's a very dangerous guy anywhere on the court. No fear of shooting it anywhere. And they're coached by a gentleman by the name of, what was the coach's name? I don't have it right in front of me. Tom Nasalki. Tom Nasalki. Um- He's been the he's the first coach in Utah Jazz history. He'd been the coach since they moved. He coached actually a number of different teams. I'll just give you his resume real quick, and then you can can take back over. Spent a lot of time in the ABA. Had been 
an assistant for a couple of college teams, was an assistant with the Bucks in 71. So he would have won a championship with that team. Then he goes and he's the Dallas Chaparral's coach in 70, the year that ends in 72. Goes to Seattle for a year, comes back to the ABA with the San Antonio Spurs, who I believe were the same franchise as the Chaparral's. The year he was gone, they'd moved and he had become the coach of that. He had basically rejoined his team, even though they had moved while he was gone. Then he takes over and he's actually the coach of the Utah Stars for the two years, uh, the last two years that they're in existence, the last two years of the ABA. Ends up with Houston in the NBA for three or four years and leaves Houston to take over the Jazz in their first year in Utah. They have an interesting offseason. They draft a gentleman by the name of Danny Shays, who ends up being in the NBA as a center, ends up being in the NBA for quite a bit of time. He is the son of the legendary uh, Syracuse Nationals power forward Dolph Shays, still considered one of the greatest, uh, you know, on the NBA 75 team, considered one of the greatest players of all time. And so they bring him in. And in the offseason, they almost sign John Lucas, who had been a guard with the Sixers. I'm sorry, with the um, with the Rockets and that had been in Golden State for a couple of years. And they sign him to some sort of an offer sheet. And the Warriors, who he'd been with, have an opportunity to match it. And I don't know the whole story here. Somehow he ends up with the Washington Bullets and plays with them for a couple of years and then ends up being a, a, a guard on the Rockets team in 86 that goes to the finals against the Celtics. And this is a guy, not a not, later a coach in the NBA for a lot of years with Philly and with San Antonio in, in the early David Robinson years. So a guy who um, also had a substance abuse problem and later became a, a counselor and that type of thing for NBA players fighting substance abuse. So they almost make this somewhat big signing. A guy who'd been a two-time All-American at the University of Maryland. I guess not surprising that somehow he ends up back with the Bullets, but they almost make this big signing. And so they go into the year really with not much beyond Dantley and Griffith going into this 81-82 season. Yeah, and just to highlight the experience factor, Dantley is the second most experienced guy on the team with five years in the league. There's a guy named Bill Robinzine who's been in the league for six years. And those are the only two guys with more than five years of experience. There's a couple guys with four and there's one guy with four. There's two guys with three. And then everybody else on the team is either a, a second year player or a rookie. Almost entirely. They have one, two, three, four, five, six guys on the team who are going into their second year in the NBA in this going into this 82 season. So not hard to understand why they weren't expected to do well and also why they didn't do well. Can I just go on a little bit of a digression here for a quick second? So if, if I could just digress for a minute here, just um, given that this is a sports history podcast, I want to just give you on this, this NBA preview issue of the sporting news from 1981. I want to give you a couple of the other items that I found here. First of all, in the uh, professional transactions, in 1981, the Cubs asked waivers on outfielder Barry, Bobby Bonds for purpose of giving him unconditional release. The Blue Jays acquired pitcher Steve Centony and outfielder Mitch Webster from Knoxville and outfielder 
and it is the same guy I checked, Jay Schrader from another minor league team, Jay Schrader, future quarterback of the Redskins. And also in sad news, Lord Burgley, Marquis of Exeter, who as David Burgley won the gold medal in the 400 meter intermediate hurdles at the 1928 Olympic Games, died October 22nd in a London hospital. He was 76. So, so that that was in the professional transactions sent uh, section. Yes. Well, other than the, in the in the unprofessional transactions section was pretty much everything the Yankees did at that point. <laughs> and I honestly like I I could see myself just pulling up a random issue of the sporting news from 1898 and just printing it out and reading it. But anyway, that's a little well, bit. Of- here, the one thing you got to say about the sporting news is like, I remember seeing issues of the sporting news in 1996 that you would have thought were from 1982. If you pulled them out, if you opened them up, it was a very old school magazine. So it was, it was all right. So I guess we probably should talk unless you had somewhere else you wanted to take this. You probably should, we probably should talk a little about Adrian Dantley because he is the bright spot on the team. We can start there. The sulky I had mentioned before, and then when we talk about his dismissal, I can give some some color on some more background on him and his career, both before and after this. But um, yeah, I mean, the story of this team is is Adrian Dantley, and Adrian Dantley in him in and of himself is five or six separate stories. So we may as well dig into Dantley right now. College star at Notre Dame. Hmm. And originally is drafted by who does he start his career with? I know he plays a couple years with the Lakers, but I believe he was somewhere. He starts his career with the Buffalo Braves, the future Clippers. And then he's with Indiana for a part of 77 before he goes to the Lakers in 77. And he gets traded to the Lakers to sort of be the second fiddle to Kareem to be the second offensive threat to Kareem and is there for two years does. Okay. The Lakers are a decent team playoff team, probably not, you know, not a championship contender necessarily, but a playoff team. And then at the end of the 78, 79 season, Dantley gets traded to Utah for Spencer Haywood, who's a power forward center type of guy who goes to the Lakers. Now, the funny thing about that is that Spencer Haywood only lasts with the Lakers for one season and actually gets kicked off the team by Pat Riley during the 80 finals for being high on cocaine and falling asleep at practice. I think he'd be high on cocaine and fall asleep. I think he was coming down from having been high oh, on cocaine. Okay, okay. I don't think he was high on cocaine at eleven o'clock in the morning or whenever well, practice I mean, was. You're right. People who abuse <laughs> people who habitually abuse cocaine are usually very mindful of the time of day. Um, <laughs> so it's just funny to think that had they not made this trade, which didn't mean anything. A lot of times when you hear about a guy getting traded, you're like, oh, can you imagine if they didn't make that trade? They would have had all these guys. But then, but the trade also did things on the ancillary level that helped that team. Spencer Haywood did little or nothing to help the Lakers dynasty of the 80s. If they don't make that trade with the Jazz in 79, they probably, and Dantley works out, they probably don't draft James Worthy a couple years later because he's sort of that same type of player. So 
that random trade in 79 between Dantley and Haywood with the Jazz and the Lakers really kind of plays a role in the basketball of the 80s. And we'll talk about uh, sort of after we wrap up this year and do the, the tales on all these guys, Adrian Dantley still had one more big trade to go in terms of being much more directly related to the birth of a dynasty at the end of his career. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so they go in with him as the leader of the team and Dantley is not talked about in sort of the pantheon of all time, great players. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but he was never, He's a really good player. He's a Hall of Famer, although we've talked about the basketball Hall of Fame a little bit before. And Dantley was just one of those guys who was good while he was there, but not really well remembered after his career ends. Bill Simmons says that he was a pain wearing out his welcome with five different teams. L.A. gave him. Gave him away for a washed up Spencer Haywood right before Magic's rookie year. Dantley averaged 28 in Utah. L.A. won the title anyway, and Haywood didn't make an impact. And then Simmons says, other than probably snorting the most lines at Jack Nicholson's house that season. Yeah, Dantley, never a guy who really got along with his teammates in any real meaningful way. He's a six foot three post up player, so a very different kind of player. And the best player on these jazz teams by a long shot, but never really does anything big in his career. Yeah, I mean, the, the era we're talking about now is clearly the best era, the best you know stretch of his career. He had won the scoring title uh, the year before. He had led the league in scoring in 1980, 1981. Now, again, some of that is he's on a team with guys who... He doesn't have to worry about other guys getting their shots or or taking any of his points because he's clearly the lead dog on the team. There's not really anybody else who would even come close to that. But he did, you know, he did lead the score, the league in scoring in 81. And he has another phenomenal year this year, obviously doing it on a team that's not very good. But we'll get into some of these games that he's had in a little while. He has another really good year. I should also note that he's a local boy. He's a, uh, D.C. native and uh, goes to Dematha Catholic, one of the great high schools in the Washington, D.C. area, Hyattsville, Maryland. So grows up and plays not far from where I'm recording. So I should note that for all the the D.C. area fans. The year before he had averaged 30.7 in the year we're talking about, he averaged 30.3 the next year, 30.7 and the year after that, 30.6. So four straight years where he averages 30 or more. So the season starts and they actually start off pretty well. They win seven of their first 12 and there's sort of this general talk of optimism. Nasalki says the improvement is obvious. We're getting there a step at a time. He thinks they're probably still a couple of drafts away. Dantley leads the jazz and assist uh, 12 games into the season. Uh, so just sort of, they start off, they seem to be doing Okay, Daryl Griffith is doing pretty well. He's not a very intense player. Nasalki says if he would be a little more intense, he could be a real superstar. But they start off okay for the first 12 games, and then the bottom just kind of starts to fall out as the 
November turns into December. Yeah, they have at one point a stretch of they lose a ton of games in a row. I'm pulling up their uh, their schedule at the moment here, but there's a very long losing streak in there. If they have an 18 game losing streak. It's one of the longest losing streaks in modern NBA history. 18 games. Okay. Last until April 3rd. I don't have right in front of me when it starts, but they finally break it on April 3rd against the Kansas City Kings. Yeah, so like you said, after they they start out decently enough and then really is you start to roll into after Thanksgiving, I guess they start the night after Thanksgiving with a loss to Portland that results in three straight losses, then a win, then they lose one, two, three, four in a row, manage to win two out of three, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in a row, including a loss on the first day of 82. And by that point, they are dead and buried. They're way under 500 already. They are 10 and 20, where they had been as close as they'd been eight and eight. And they'd actually been, yeah, they'd been eight and eight. So they lose 12 out of 14, which buries them at 10 and 20 as 1982 was beginning. And, you know, they're obviously not coming back from that. And it really doesn't get all that much better, as we talked about with some of these. There's that crazy long losing streak. But really, that's not that much worse than most of their 18-game sp- uh, spans. There'd be times where they'd lose eight in a row and then win a game and then lose six in a row and then win a game and then lose five in a row. And one of the casualties of the horrible losing streak is that Nasalki gets fired and is replaced in December by the team's general manager, Frank Layden. Yep. And uh, Frank Layden is obviously a, an interesting person for us to talk about. Layden has been the president, he'd been the GM or whatever the, the, the term was. But when they decide they have to move on from uh, from Nisalki, they go to Layden just names himself the head coach, which he remains for a little while. I'm looking at uh, Nisalki's obituary, uh, actually on the Jazz website from when he passed away three years ago. He... One coach of the year uh, in both the ABA and the NBA. I believe he's the only guy to ever do that. He wins it with Cleveland after he leaves here. And he had won it with, uh, I believe, with the Utah Stars before that. The quote he has on the website about after, he said, anytime we won, it was an event. It really was. Talking about his early runs with the Jazz uh, in Utah. Fired in 1981, remained on good terms with Battistone and the Jazz, became the head coach of the Cavaliers for two seasons before finishing his career as an assistant with the Denver Nuggets, did return to Utah and became a radio analyst for Jazz games for uh, for a number of years. So stayed uh, in some capacity with the franchise for quite a while. You know, it's funny because I actually sort of got the impression that I had heard that name before. And if he was a radio color guy, you know, in the eighties and nineties, that probably might've been where I heard it from. I don't know the exact years or if it was the exact capacity. I tried to find that, but it's, you know, difficult, but um, he was obviously there for at least a little, little bit of time in the early days of the jazz. And that means, you know, if, if he came back after his career was over, he was probably a radio announcer for some of those teams in the nineties that were, you know, very good teams. I couldn't find this explicitly stated anywhere, but if you read between the lines, there's I saw something from about late February of 82 that the Jazz, in addition to all of their on-court issues, they were 
cutting back on their front office staff. They'd had 20 full-time employees when the season started, but they were down to 13 by the late February. So I wonder if part of Layden's motivation in naming himself was trying to save money because while I'm sure he got some sort of a salary increase to become the GM and the coach, he probably wasn't making two full salaries plus whatever benefits and whatever, you know, were as part of that. So I wonder if that was some sort of a money, money saving gesture, money saving effort by Layden, just naming himself the coach. Let's uh, let's just touch on who Frank Layden is for a couple of minutes here. He is actually still alive. He's 90 years old from Brooklyn, New York. He had uh, been an assistant. Well, first he was the head coach at Niagara in Western New York. And, and did well, I think. Did pretty well. Coach Niagara to its first NCAA tournament appearance in 1970 with the help of Calvin Murphy, uh, an assistant coach with the Hawks uh, under Hubie Brown. And then in 79 was hired as the GM of the Jazz when they were still in New Orleans, took over as the head coach in the time frame we're talking about and was the coach for the next seven and a half years. Um, and obviously also main, uh, remained as the GM, which means he was the guy responsible for drafting Carl Malone and John Stockton. There's an article here from when he was hired and the headline of it is jolly fat man takes reins. And it says, <laughs> uh, outfit him with a phony beard and red flannel pajamas. And he would look exactly like Mr. S Claus. And it says that he one of the things that they emphasize about him is that he's not somebody who takes him self very seriously, not somebody who takes losses too hard. He says, I see too many mad people in this game. I always thought it's supposed to be fun. I don't know. Maybe I'm nuts. And I think despite his kind of laid back demeanor, it doesn't necessarily help this season but he kind of helps turn the franchise around he sets the stage for some of those later years with jerry west or i'm sorry with jerry sloan oh absolutely i mean there's no doubt by the think about where the jazz were by 1988 they were not a championship team but they were a team that was a perennial playoff team usually first or second round they had two established all-stars who were going on to be Hall of Famers. I don't know that it was apparent by then, but you know, that run that set the Jazz up in the in the mid-80s set them up for 20 years. Those guys were the backbone of that franchise until the early 2000s or I guess late 90s, but you know, right around then. Misses the playoffs this year, misses the playoffs the following year and then makes the playoffs the next 5 seasons and I don't think he he retires from coaching in 89 to serve full time as president and general manager. How long is he GM for? When does he leave as the general manager? You know, it's tough because it seems like he might have got a lot of these. I think he got promoted a few times to where he was like the president, but who knows if he's actually doing anything. Sometimes these guys get like emeritus positions. Let me see. Coaching career. He steps down in 88 and Retired from coaching the Jazz in 89 to serve full-time as the franchise president and general manager. Jerry Sloan replaced him. Layden once served briefly as a consultant for the New York Knicks, where his son Scott Layden served as a general manager. Um, so, yeah, I don't know exactly what year he stepped down. 
but it looks like he was with them for quite a while. But again, it's hard to tell with that. Like when, when did he stop making the day-to-day moves is tough to tell. I remember vaguely this story and I tried to find evidence of this. I don't think I imagined it, but I couldn't find it anywhere where one time he was being heckled by, um, we thought he was being heckled by some fans and they were calling him fat and everything else. And they said, are you hungry? And he said, yeah. And they said, all right, we'll get you a hot dog. And they brought him a hot dog and a beer. And he sat on the bench and ate his hot dog and drank his beer. I, I swear I did not imagine that story, but I couldn't find it anywhere in doing my research to try and verify it for this show. It says he stepped down as the jazz president in late 99. So that was obviously just after their back-to-back finals runs, or I guess a year after their back-to-back finals runs. He was only 67 when he stepped down in 99. So he would have been a young man and he would have been in his, well, a young man by coaching. He would have been in his early fifties, I guess, as the coach of this team in the eighties and, was not a new GM or coach at that, or, you know, he, he'd been in the, in the sport for quite a while in a professional capacity. He also seems to have been just a very nice, good hearted man. He, every time he got a technical foul, he would donate a hundred dollars to the special Olympics. So he was just a, he, he was just a good guy. Everything you've heard. And he closes his coaching career with a team called the Utah Stars in the D. He actually, oh, in the WNBA. Wow! So he mm-hmm. actually coaches the coaches in the WNBA for a year with the Utah team. I, you know, it's funny. I think I remember that. I think I remember the fact that that was a noteworthy thing that he had come in to coach in the WNBA after having been out of coaching for so long. I was uh, looking up. Well, I guess we should talk about some of the other players on this team. Um, I know you mentioned Danny Shays briefly. You also had uh, Daryl Griffith on the team, and he would actually be on the Jazz for 11 years. He is in his second year in the league at this point. Uh, Had been rookie of the year the year before. Had been rookie of the year the year before. Starts 79 games. I I guess it would – Dantley starts in 81 games. Ricky Green starts in 73 games. Daryl Griffith starts in 79. Jeff Wilkins, 62, and Ben Paquette. 56. So those are like your normal starting lineups, but yeah, he's um, Griffith was on the team all the way through the 91 season playing at shooting guard. He was a starter pretty much his entire career. No, he wasn't. That was, he was a starter until he injured his foot. I was looking at total games played, but played, you know, he was in the rotation pretty much his entire career before he left at 32. So he would have, you know, played alongside Stockton quite a bit, you know, come off the bench for those teams by the time things turned around. So he's there. And then there was also, uh, well, there's, and then there's, I mentioned Ricky Green, who would go on to be an all-star uh, a couple years later. He was an all-star in 83, 84. So two years after this, he plays with Utah until 88 and then spends some time bouncing around the league and is actually in the league until 92. So he has about a 15 year career. And this is where I'd like to reiterate that we're talking about a team that was 25 and 57 and was bad and stayed bad. So you're like, well, he's really pointing out that they had a guy who made one all-star team. Yes. Yes, we are. Yes. We wouldn't have chosen to do this episode if we had to come up with a real topic. (laughs) But yes, I'm coming up with notable things. And while I'm on the subject of notable things, another guy who's on this team is a guy by the name of Sam Worthen, who goes on after this to become the coach in Washington. not the Washington Bullets, 
and not the Washington Wizards, which is the same team. Do you know what Washington dynasty he became the coach of? Does he coach the WNBA team, the Mystics? No. I, I don't Their know. Their record is not very stellar. Their record is not very stellar. I don't know what you're talking about. He is the, or at least was at one point. It says he still is, but I don't know if that's true. The coach of the Washington Generals. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> for, for anybody who doesn't know, that's the team that for 75 years has gotten its brains beat in by the Harlem Globetrotters all the time. Yeah, they change the name now a bunch, but it's the same guys. So, like, sometimes it's the New York Nationals, and sometimes it's the Washington Generals, and sometimes it's somebody else, but it's the same team. Because I remember watching them a bunch on, like, ESPN growing up and being like, I thought they played the Washington Generals. This is, like, a different team. And then I found out it's the same. They just change uniforms, I guess. What is that job to coach them? I mean, you still have to, like, sub guys and stuff. Like, you still do need it. They need a former NBA player to do that? Somebody's got to do it. I mean, that's a good point, but and I'm guessing they practice. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really know, but um, you know, so that's just a couple of the other luminaries that make up the team, the 1981, 1982 Utah Jazz. You know, it's funny you mentioned Daryl Griffith because I remember those teams, like those late 80s, early 90s Jazz teams. They weren't as good as the teams that came after, but that was obviously Stockton and Malone. It was. Eaton, Mark Eaton, who we talked about on last year's In Memoriam. It was Thurl Bailey. It was um, with Daryl Griffith, obviously. Those were some decent teams in sort of the, the purple age of the early 90s before they got really good with the, you know, the Hornacek, Harold Isley, those, the Ostertag, those guys. Those teams of the early nineties, those were some good teams. I think they made the conference finals once or twice. Yeah, well, let's 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 do that at the end. Let's kind of roll that forward. I wanted to talk a little bit about Adrian Dantley's just some of the games he played. He scored forty or more points thirteen times. Uh, the high water mark for the year was on April tenth of eighty two, so late in the season against Denver in a win. He went for fifty three points. And 12 rebounds. Second, he also had 46 in January against Cleveland in a loss, 44 against the Knicks, and then 43 a handful of other times. He only had, geez, he only had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games where he scored less than 20 points. So he had more games where he scored 40 points than he did games where he scored less than 20 points. So, you know, another phenomenal year. He's obviously their only uh, their only all-star on the team. The other sort of just slight anomaly I wanted to point out with this team is, again, they're a team that goes 25 and 57. So they're, they're not any great shakes. I look to see, you know, how did they do against some of the the top teams in the league, did they beat the Lakers at all? Did they beat the Celtics or the Warriors, or not the Warriors, or the Sixers, the couple of times they played them? And it didn't didn't appear that way. The best I could find was that they did beat, they played the, they beat the Spurs, who were the Western Conference runners-up. So they lost to the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. They beat the Spurs three times this year. They beat them in December of 81, and then they beat them in January of 82 
And then they beat them again in March. And that was in San Antonio. So, you know, a pretty good record for a team that only wins 25 games to have three of them be against team, a team that, you know, finishes in the top four in the league, I think is, I don't know if it's significant, but it's something. I used a historical newspaper database to look for articles. And it's funny because this database, it has like six or seven of like the big papers, New York times and Los Angeles times, Mm. Boston globe. And so it's like every story is like, Celtics beat Jazz 132 to 90. Uh, Utah loses to Lakers. You know, every every story is just that team coming into the city that the newspaper covers and they getting smacked around by the team in, um, you know, the team in that particular city. So there's a lot of um, this article by Michael Madden, Boston Globe says, the jazz may have set back music, basketball, and competitive sports 50 years with its non-performance. Utah disappeared from its scheduled 48-minute game with the Celtics after only three minutes, fell behind by a mere 38 points in the second quarter, trailed by 48 in the second half, and finally expired 132-90. to And Layden says, quote, we were hopeless. So they just kind of go into every city this season and get smacked by the the cream of the crop in the NBA and sometimes not by the cream of the crop, sometimes by teams that are just better than they are. And we'll, uh, we're obviously not going to belabor this too much longer, but um, after the 18 game losing streak, they follow that up with a three game winning streak actually against the Kansas city Kings, the San Diego Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks. They win three games in a row, which gets them to a stout 22 and 53 And I guess if you're looking for bright spots after that 18 game losing streak, one, two, three, four, five, six, they win six of their last 10. So you said they, they played okay. Their first 12 games and they played okay. Their last 10 games. It was just those middle 60 that were a problem. I don't know. Do we have anything else we really want to say about the season? About the team itself, I'll play this forward in a little while. You know, they're towards the bottom of the league in the in attendance. They're playing at a place called the Salt Palace, which is where they played when from when they moved to Utah until they moved into the what was called then the Delta Center when they moved in and was what it was called when they were in their heyday in the nineties. And it's funny that I was looking, they were in the low, they were low in attendance pretty much every year in the salt palace, even when they got good in the late eighties with uh, Stockton and Malone, they were still 20 or whatever in attendance out of a 27 team league. As soon as they moved into the Delta center in 91, 92, they jumped to third and they stayed in the top five or six for quite a while after that. So it was just, uh, one of those where the arena was kind of holding them back from, uh, from attendance, but they played in the salt palace, a building, which was, Named after, it actually was called the Calvin R. Rampton Salt Palace. Named after Utah's 11th governor. Oh, hang on. This is the current convention center. Let me see the actual arena. Okay. Built on land that was once in the little little Tokyo area of the city. Little Tokyo and Salt Lake City must have been an interesting place. Salt Palace was demolished in 1994. Was the home of the Jazz and before that, the stars of the ABA. Seating capacity. Highest it ever got was 12,000. And then there was also a, so there's 
in the Wikipedia for the Salt Palace, there's the general information, and then the section headers are pro basketball, seating capacity, concert deaths. And apparently three teenagers were killed in an ACDC rock concert at the Salt Palace in 1991. Um, Jesus. Yes. And I'm sure the reaction to that in Utah was very uh, reasoned <laughs> about rock music and, and the influence it has on their children. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, for that specific year, that might be the end of it. I guess we could talk about the future, what it held for Dantley and what it held for the franchise and that kind of thing. So before we do that, there is a sad story. We mentioned a gentleman by the name of Bill Robinzini, who was a power forward with the team. It was his only year in Utah. It started with the Kings, uh, spent a little bit of time in Cleveland, a season in Dallas, and then his last year with the Jazz and he kind of falls out of the rotation, especially once Layden becomes the coach and Layden uh, tells him that if he is going to try and resign Robinzini for the following season, that it's likely to be at a much lower contract. And apparently he has some, some financial concerns, stresses, problems going on anyway. And, and sadly, after this season and after it becomes clear that his NBA career might be over, Robinzini commits suicide. His wife says he couldn't reconcile not being in the NBA anymore. And, you know, Layden talks about how after he talks to him, he tells him that he's probably not going to be able to sign him. And Robinzini never sees Robinzini again. So it really is just kind of a sad story. And you watch these old games and you you see these players and sometimes, you you know, you watch an old NBA game and there's always just so many, you know, I was watching a game of the 84 Nick Piston playoffs the other day on NBA TV and, you know, Bernard King's there and Isaiah Thomas and Lambeer and Bill Cartwright and, you know, but then you always see these guys who you're just not familiar with because, you know, how would you be? And you just you sometimes you need to remind yourself that some of these guys have stories that you don't realize. And these guys who are part of the game, part of the league, and sometimes the, the, their stories don't have the happiest of endings. So, you know, we just happen to land on a team with our little randomness here that has a player who met a very tragic end right after the season ended. So it's worth noting that as well. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, a story I never would have known if we hadn't landed on this specific year and this specific team. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's good, but it obviously shines light that not every team has a story like this, obviously, but more of them do than you think. So um, absolutely. So just real quick to play it forward for the the Jazz, 82-83 is not much better they're 30 and 52, but the next year, 83, 84, they get to the playoffs and they start a run where from 84 until 03, they do not miss the playoffs. And that's the Stockton and Malone era until Stockton retires and Malone leaves for uh, LA for a year. They get to the conference finals in what was the first year they get to the conference finals. They get to the conference finals in 92 and lose to Portland. 
they get to the conference finals again in 94 and lose to that would have been uh Houston yep, obviously Houston, yeah and then in 96 they get to the conference finals and lose to Seattle and that actually is the first I remember that game that was the first the night that Seattle wrapped them up so they lose the conference finals 92 94 96 finally get over the hump and get to the finals in 97 and 98 they're a 60 plus win team both of those years they lose to the bulls in six games both of those years the 98 finals will forever be famous for michael jordan and his his last what we thought was his last game certainly his last game as a bull and even after that they maintained being pretty good they had a couple of years in the late 2000s where they were good had a, had a stretch of not being too great and now they are back as a uh powerhouse in the nba with uh they were in the conference semifinals last year perennially these days have one of the best records in the league they'll be in the playoffs again this year and i think we just also should point out this team so if you go from when they started in utah the sulky was the coach for three and a half years or whatever then laden was the coach uh from middle of 82 until part of 89 sloan takes over in 89 Sloan is the coach all the way until the 2010-2011 season. It goes to a guy named, I think it's Tyrone Corbin for a couple of years, and it's been Quinn Snyder since 2015. So they've had one, two, three. They've had four coaches since they've been in Utah. Wow. That is crazy. I didn't realize that. I thought between Sloan and the current guy, there would have been more, but there's not. They do not change coaches often. And I guess the other part of the story to tell is the Adrian Dantley aspect of it. Yeah, I guess I would also just note that uh, for us, when we hear Frank Layden, we also immediately think of his son, Scott Layden, who was the general manager of the Knicks from 99 until 2003 in sort of the waning years of the, the golden age of the Knicks and sort of the the first general manager whose head everybody was calling for it, And that's gone on for the last 20 years, but Layden Scott Layden, that is was sort of the first one that everybody was scapegoating for the sorry state of the team. And he was replaced by a guy who's going to be a part of the next story. We tell Isaiah Thomas. So Dantley is with the jazz again for several more years after 82, Missed a lot of time in 83 because he tore some ligaments in his wrist. Wins comeback player of the year in 84. Says on August 21st of 86, so obviously the offseason, because of a deteriorated relationship with head coach Frank Layden over his contract, he was traded with second-round draft choices to the Detroit Pistons in exchange for shooting guard Kelly Trapuca and Kurt Benson. So he goes over to the Pistons and is there for – Several years, Dantley was knocked unconscious while driving for a loose ball in game seven of the 1987 Eastern Conference Finals against uh, the Celtics. That would have been that would have been the last year that the Celtics got uh, beat Detroit. Yes. Um, And then. It said he started the season with the in 88, 89, he starts with the with the Pistons the year before that the Pistons had got to the finals and lost to the Lakers in seven games. Right. Yeah, and Dantley is still there. He's still probably their top scorer of that that team that loses to the Lakers in the finals. That's still sort of very much an Adrian Dantley team. I mean, Isaiah is probably still the best player, but 
Dantley is just as much. And I'm looking up here. I want to see who the leading scorer was of that team because it might well have been Dantley. Um, just uh, bear with me for mm. one second here. Points a game. Yeah, Dantley leads that 87-88 team with 20 points a game. Isaiah is right behind him at 19 and a half. So that's the conflict during that 87-88 season is between Isaiah and Dantley. On February 15th of 89, so a little more than halfway through the season, the Pistons are good, but they're maybe struggling a little bit. He gets traded to Dallas in exchange for Mark Aguirre. So Aguirre goes back to the Pistons. Due to what Dantley maintained were conflicts with Thomas, but also reflected Dantley's clashes with head coach Chuck Daly and general manager Jack McCloskey over his demand for a focal point role on offense and to play more minutes than Dennis Rodman. So he goes for the second time. He gets traded right before a dynasty, or not a dynasty, but right before a championship gets won. Obviously, this one is much more direct than what we talked about with in the late 70s with who do you get traded for for the Lakers? Spencer Haywood. Spencer Haywood. Okay. So obviously this is a much more because Mark Aguirre becomes a huge focal point of the pit two piston back-to-back championships. And that's really it for Dantley. He goes to Dallas, which at that point is basketball Siberia plays a, a, a little in 89, 90 gets hurt and then plays 10 games with Milwaukee the year after that. And that's the end of his NBA career. And he really just doesn't fit on those Pistons teams. There's a 30 for 30 called bad boys that kind of delves into that whole thing. But he was not a player in the Rodman, Mahorn, Lambeer, Isaiah mode. He was not a tough guy the way mm-hmm. these other guys were. He got knocked unconscious. He didn't do the knocking out. And that was who those Piston teams were. So that is that trade is always seen as sort of the the last piece in making them the piston team that they became and it's you watch a little bit of that 88 finals and he, he just he just doesn't fit on that 88 on that piston team with all those other guys so yeah and he, like you said his best years were probably those early 80s in utah and he's got his i didn't realize this but his jersey which i guess makes sense but his jersey is retired by the utah jazz and the jazz actually have a ton of retired numbers Daryl griffiths is retired too i believe I mean, I'll pull it up. I know Frank Layden's has number one retired, you know, for him, obviously, as the more as the GM than as the coach. But Utah Jazz retired numbers. Frank Layden numbers is number one. Adrian Dantley's four. I'm just looking for guys that are on this team. Daryl Griffiths, number 35. And then Hot Rod Hunley, who would have been a broadcaster uh, on that team, is uh, he has a microphone retired. So. In addition to the guys you'd expect, Stockton, Malone, Hornacek. So, yeah, uh, you know, Dantley is is probably the best early player in jazz. Well, he's definitely the best player in the early part of the jazz franchise, the Utah franchise. Yeah, Utah, yeah. Pistol Pete maybe before that in mm. New Orleans. And Pistol but... Pete's number is retired as well. So Yeah, absolutely. All right, well. That's the 81-82 Jazz. That's, uh, I think we, we, you know, we did a decent job, I feel like. Yeah, and that, like I said, this to me, no, it's not the most, um, it's not the most consequential thing that ever happened. But this, and, but I, I think the point of this, at least from my standpoint, was like to show two things. One, to show off a little, to show that, yeah, we can fit a decent episode out of anything if we have time to prepare a little bit. And B, just to also show that, yeah, there's, 
I don't mean that because like we're so talented at this. I mean that there's cool stories in a lot of these teams. And this was probably an extreme example because it was a bad team that was bad the year before, stayed bad, but wasn't bad in like a hilarious way or in a high profile way with cranky veterans or anything like this. It was a bad team that was mostly young and had one all-star player at the height of his career. We, if we had gone game by game and said, oh, and then they lost and Dantley scored 38 points and they lost 106 to 91 to uh, Portland. No, that wouldn't be interesting. But I think as we do more of these and maybe we'll get a team that sniffed the playoffs or, you know, I hope or, so. or, you know, a, a football team that went 10 and six. I, I actually did really enjoy this. It's just a total departure from a lot of the other stuff we do where we're talking about, well, this is important and you have to understand the context of this and you have to, you know, think about the the environment at the time and what led to this. This is just kind of like, here's a team. We remember one of my favorite bits that a, a guy named David Roth, a writer uh, for Defector and formerly Deadspin does on Twitter sometimes, is he just tweets out, he's like, let's remember some guys and people just tweet random baseball players from like seventies and eighties and nineties at them. This was kind of that. Yeah, no, it absolutely was. All right. And well, next week 82, 83 jazz. <laughs> you just picture it being like one of these, like uh last dance type of things where it's like an eight episode. <laughs> Or what if we just what if we just keep doing the same team? We're like hey, 81, 82 jazz again. <laughs> no, in the unlikely event they were to come up again in the uh random number thing, uh, we will probably skip. I think we would time. be entitled to push the buzzer and uh call for yes. a new one. Yes. All right. Well, something different for you here. Hope hope you all learned something. Hope you learned about some guys, some teams, some some you know some stories that you might not have learned otherwise. So uh, we appreciate it. And uh, next time we will do something a little bit more expected. But until that time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.